Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Steve Keller. I want to uh, actually applaud all of you for being here today, and I, I'm very grateful to you um, because we, we are walking together through the book of Romans, and for a congregation of people to hang in there for the first three chapters is commendable because it, it is a very confrontive um, portion of text. And Paul is, just so you know, from my preaching, Chris's marvelous preaching last week, I watched your sermon. Well done, young sir. Um, but it, it's a real challenge to preach the first three chapters because these are not only the sins of the Roman church, these are the sins of religion that Paul is dealing with. And just to, to kind of get his heart, you know, Paul, why would you come at the church and say such things and push them and you know, why not let, let well enough, just leave it alone, you know? They'll work it out in the long run. And it's because Paul, Paul is a liberator, and he sees a group of people in captivity. And so for Paul, Jesus is worth their freedom. Jesus is worth them being free and them loving and living and making a difference. He, he's worth it. And so before I preach today, I just want to preach on this theme, or pray on this thing, I should say, of captivity. I am going to pray for uh, an EPC missionary today, Andrew Brunson. Many of you know him. Yep. Um, it did come out this week. We have not talked a lot about Andrew because we've been asked not to. Um, keep it out of the press. Don't put anything on social media. But it was announced today that, uh, or this week, that Turkey is seeking at a minimum to keep him in prison for the rest of his life for something he did not do. Uh, absolutely not a part of a coup to do anything. Some of us actually know Andrew we know his good work there, just the way he has poured out his heart so that Turkey might come to know Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pray for him. But if, if you would say, even today as we pray, that you feel captive in some way, I'm going to include uh, you in the prayer. So let's just go to the Lord, and then we'll dive into the Scripture today. Father God, we, we begin today, and we recognize um, that, that Paul has been about our freedom, um, the freedom of your church that they would not be encumbered by sin and negativity and, Lord God, just all those things that, that are like little foxes that spoil the vine of our love for you. There wouldn't be vines that would hold us back like shackles on us. So, Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul. I thank you for his courage to preach the truth out of love that the church might be everything Jesus died to make it. Father God, so as, as Lord, we, we do that, we recognize captivity. Lord, we pray for Andrew Brunson today in Jesus' name. Father God, so often from our point of view, it seems like the, the power in this world rests with governments and presidents and, um, Lord, evil militias around the world. But Father God, we say that you are Lord of all. Jesus Christ, you are the Lord of Turkey. You are the Lord of this world. And, and today we lift Jesus Christ the name of Jesus over Andrew's captivity. Father God, we ask you to release this man to his family. Lord, re release him to, to his work, making Jesus Christ known. And Father God, as we pray for him and as we hear the words of Paul, Lord, would you release us from those things that hold us back? Lord God, whether, whether they're attitudes that have just, we've just grown so familiar with them that it feels okay to be angry. We can justify why we're negative. Lord, we, we can look at everyone else's sin and 
Um, Father, look at it disapprovingly and give ourselves a free pass. Lord, in Jesus' name, would you set us free from everything that hinders us in Jesus' name. And Lord, where we, we have folks who they are captive to illness, Lord God, whether that be physical or mental, Lord, whether it's an emotional wound from the past, we pray that just, God, that we would be a people that are set free, just set free in Jesus' name for so much more than just existing throughout this life. We love you, Lord God. We thank you for the privilege of coming underneath your word. Father, help us to walk with you in freedom, in fullness, in life, in joy, in victory, in confident hope in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, Romans 1 through 3. Um, today we're going into chapter 3. We will go through about verse 20 today. And just so you know, this is, this is kind of the end of Paul's initial confrontation with the church of Jesus Christ as Rome at Rome. And um, just to, to kind of set this up and to make sure we get the heart of what Paul is after, I want to start off with a, with a personal story from my life and just let you know that when I was growing up, um, I have uh, a mom and dad, Ron and Noel Keller. Uh, my mom, Noel, is from England. Her name, to everyone who knows her well, is Lovey. So uh, I, I grew up, though, with, with Ron and Noel as my parents. And for their mistakes, and they'll tell you they weren't perfect, um, they did a wonderful job of loving me as a child. They were very kind. They were positive people. They were very happy. Um, and uh, they, they just loved me well. They really did. Um, I, I had a wonderful childhood full of joy, happiness, laughter, lots and lots of memories. And there's only one blip on my childhood that I can think of. I mean, there's only one real negative thing that I can bring up. And it's, um, it's, it's when I got in trouble, you know. Um, as a child, I got in trouble. And um, I, I will say for my, to my parents' credit that when I got in trouble, I always deserved it. Um, I, I'll just give you one example. One time I got mad at my sister as a young man, and um, I took my mother's sewing scissors, and I turned all of her Barbies into G.I. Joes. I got into incredible trouble for that, but it was well-deserved. And my British mother, whenever I was in trouble, she'd come up to me, and usually the look on her face gave it away, but if it didn't, and if I was a little dull-witted, she had this one phrase that she said every single time, and it made my blood run cold. It let me know I was really in for it, and she would walk up and say, Stephen, I have a bone to pick with you. Now, I still have no idea what that means, okay? I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea what I have, but, but y'all, when she said it, it did make my blood run cold. It just stopped me in my tracks. In fact, I am 50 years old, and if my mother walked up to me today and she said, Stephen, I have a bone to pick with you, I'm telling you, I would just freeze up. And the reason why I, freezed up, I froze up was not because my parents did a really good job in every other part of life, but when I got in trouble, they became mean and abusive, you know, or they got too angry, they took discipline too far, and they, they injured me emotionally or physically. That wasn't the reason. The reason my blood ran cold was because my parents loved me and because I loved them. And I knew in that moment I had done something to hurt them. I had done something to cause chaos in my family. Yes, it was a little bit about the punishment, but for me, when my mom or dad confronted me like that, I had this heart pain inside and it made me want to change my ways. Um, I will tell all, any kids that are in the room this, looking back, 
I am so thankful that my parents loved me enough to tell me the truth, to discipline me. It has paid off so much in my life um, just to have parents that did that. Uh, and, and in fact, I'll tell you this, I was reflecting on this at this week, and one of the disadvantages, and I never thought about this before, but one of the disadvantages I have now is that as a grown-up and as an adult, I kind of miss it sometimes that my parents aren't in my life in that way to show me when I blow it. You know, I don't know if as an adult you've ever had that thought like, you know, I kind of miss my mom and dad being there to, to kind of draw me up short because, you know, as adults now, it's up to us to recognize when we make a mistake. It, it's up to us to self-correct, especially as believers. And, you know, I, I face this temptation as my, in my life as an adult to, you know, kind of look the other way when I blow it. You know, to, to ignore my faults, to, you know, point at other people as the problem, to just keep on chugging on with my life. I mean, as an adult, I, I, a lot of times Steve Keller wants to do anything but repent and recognize my failure and my sin. Now, I tell you all that because this is what Paul is doing for the church in Rome in chapters 1 through 3, verses 20. The Apostle Paul is a spiritual father. And I think that's the difference between being a hireling, you know, a guy who shows up and I'm just going to make everybody happy, you know, whatever you guys want, I'll do it, whatever y'all want, anything to make people happy. I think that's the heart of a hireling, you know, a guy who's just collecting a paycheck. But in Paul, we have a spiritual father. And, and he wants to see what's right. He, he, he wants to see Jesus Christ glorified. And so what he does in this chapter is he brings correction to the church. You know, and I, and I know Paul is probably facing the temptation a lot of ministers face. You know, if I get too harsh, if I deal with these issues, you know, it might show up in the plate. It might show up in the pew, but Paul, Paul is not driven by that. Jesus is worth it for Paul. And so here he has this church, and it's a young church, and it's made up of all these different folks, Jews and Gentiles and God-fearers and people off the street, and, 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 and they are blowing it. You know, that there are some sins present in this little church that if they run their course, you know, time is not just going to make it go away. They're going to infect the church. This church will be derailed from its God-given mission. And so Paul loving them, what he's thinking is, I want these guys to thrive. I, I want this to turn into a spiritual family that makes a difference in Rome. And so Paul brings them the truth. He tells them the truth about spiritual life and sin and correction and discipline. And Chris, I was so proud of you last week. I, I, I wasn't just, just kind of giving you a nod at the beginning. Paul is dealing with uncomfortable issues, and, and you were man enough in that sermon to just bring those out last week, because these aren't just the sins of Rome, these are the sins of every church. And so Chris pointed out last week that, you know, there were in that church some Christian Roman Jews, and here they are, they've come to Christ, you know, they're taking these first steps, but what happens as soon as they begin to get familiar with, with spiritual life? You know, as soon as they kind of get their feet wet and, and church begins to feel normal, they start sliding back into some old, long-standing religious sins that happen to be true of temple life, of, of believing that, you know, the, the dangers and the deadliness of sin, that applies to all those people out there. It doesn't apply to us. Everybody else in this world is in need of correction, but not us. 
And so, so he brought up some of these sins from last week. One is just elitism. A number of people in the, in the, in the Roman church, these Jewish Christians, feeling like, you know, we, we've always had the law of God. You know, we, we've got these Old Testament rituals. We're circumcised Jews. There's a pride standing in this church. You know, we live by the morals, the ethics of the Old Testament. You know, everybody in this church needs to grow, but we're pretty good. And so that came together, and he showed last week how that came together to create this nasty thing, this horrible word that we all hate, and we, it's never going to be true of us, but of hypocrisy, where for some of them in the church, their lives and their words just didn't match up. They had a message. They had anthems, perhaps, they would sing, but th- their behavior, the lives they were living, it just didn't match up. And so Paul stepped up with this one little group of people, and he lovingly dropped a truth bomb on them that could set them free if they had ears to hear. And so Paul essentially last week said, for your information, Jewish Christians, your outward circumcision, it is not a free ticket to heaven. The real issue, the real question with with us as Christians, with this church is, hey, is your heart circumcised? Is your heart open and tender and soft toward God? Or are are you a God seeker? Do you pursue him with passion? Paul is essentially asking these people last week, look, are you just, did you get saved with Jesus only to once again become a bunch of Old Testament rule followers Or will you be Christians? Will you be filled with the life and the spirit of the living God? And again, in all of this, Paul is trying to keep them from going back to their old ways of becoming a religious people who just grow kind of cold and arrogant and hard in time, who who just rely on rituals and, you know, old standing with God. He's doing everything to keep them from becoming an institution. Paul wants to see them, a vibrant family that looks like Jesus, lives like Jesus, and loves like Jesus. Okay, that was last week. Okay, now we're at chapter 3. And here's the dilemma when we get to chapter 3. Paul here actually has to go deeper with the Jewish Christians. And the reason he has to go deeper with them is because they still don't get Paul by the end of chapter 2. See, Paul has been good here. What we typically do spiritually is we will identify fruit on the tree. So Paul has pointed to some rotten fruit. But these guys still haven't taken it to heart. So now in chapter 3, Paul goes to the root of the issue because it's the root that's deceased. So listen to this, Romans 3, 1 through 8. And here is what Paul has to say. What advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you judge and right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? 
someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Okay, uh, moment of truth here. If you heard me read that or you've read that before and you thought, I have no idea what Paul is talking about here, you're in good company, okay? Let, let me tell you what Paul is doing here because you read this, it is so dense, it is so complex, it's so thick. I, I, I even had, I had to, y'all, I had to, I had to retranslate this thing from Greek this week just to get it. Here's what Paul is doing in the first eight, eight verses. Paul is using a very unique literary device to communicate, okay? It's called a diatribe. Now, here's what a diatribe is. A diatribe is when you bring up a question that somebody has asked, and then you answer it. Or you bring up their objection, and then you bring clarity to the objection. That is what Paul is doing, okay? So it's kind of like here, Paul is having a debate with himself, all right? So here's what he's doing. The questions that he's bringing up or the objections that he throws up in these first eight verses, these are actually questions and objections that people, get this, have been throwing at Paul while he's been preaching, okay? A word should come to mind, heckler. This is kind of like Paul is answering back to hecklers. In other words, it's like Paul is preaching, hey, God is good, and someone from, from the pews yells out, oh, yeah, Paul, well, if God is good, what about this? The Lord is merciful. Oh, yeah, Paul, well, then what about that? So it's as if Paul has been heckled, so he brings up these objections and these questions, and he answers them. So here they are. They're essentially four, okay? Objection number one in verses one and two. Um, someone says to Paul, Paul, listening to you, Everything you've said about the law, everything you've said about Jewish life, is there any spiritual advantage of being Jewish? Because listening to you, it doesn't sound like it means anything to be a Jew. Paul's answer back is, yes, of course there is an advantage to being Jewish. You were entrusted with the very words of God as a people. You were the very first ones, and you, for centuries, you've had the Word of God. The world has been waiting. You've had it. But Paul's point is this. That is not an automatic in with God. That's, even as far as an advantage, that really is a privilege. Those words should have led you straight to Jesus Christ for salvation, Objection number two in verse three. Okay, then, Paul. Well, what if some Jews are unfaithful? And the word there translates to unbelieving. What if some Jews don't believe the good news of Jesus Christ? Does their unbelief wipe out God's faithful love, God's mercy, God's salvation? Paul's answer back, absolutely not. Just because some are unfaithful, God is always faithful. God is 100% faithful to you at all time. In fact, if anything, your unfaithfulness to God or your unbelief for some Jews, it only goes to show how faithful he is. Look at all that God has done through all the years of unbelief. Look at the cross. Look at the Spirit poured out. Your unfaithfulness does not wipe out the faithfulness of our great God. Objection number three in verse 5. 
So Paul, if our unbelief or our unfaithfulness <laughs> is helping God out and helping people to see how good and loving and righteous God is, is it really fair then and just of God to punish us for it? Paul's answer here is genius. That is like saying it is unfair for a judge to, ju- to condemn a criminal for breaking the law. Objection number four in verse seven. But how can God judge me or us as a people or those Jews who don't believe? How can God do that if our sin brings him more glory? Paul's answer back, that's absolutely ridiculous. Why not say, well, we'll just sin even more to bring God even more glory? So this is Paul's point. And all of it, by the way, all of it points to the same issue, okay? All of these objections and these answers, they actually point to the same point. How many times can I say point in a sentence? They all point to the same point that Paul has been driving at since chapter 1. And it's actually the title in your Bibles over the next section of verses 9 through 20. Some of your Bibles say, no one is righteous. Um, My Bible says, all people are sinners. That's the point that Paul has been making. That nobody, as a human being, by nature, walking around on the planet, whether you observe a bunch of rules, you know, whether you engage in worship rituals, whether you never give God a thought, nobody, by their human nature, is righteous before God. Not outside the church and not inside the church, not even Jewish Christians who have, or, or, or not even Jews who, who have believed that the law and Old Testament rituals, rituals will save them. Let me give you an illustration of this, okay? Tim Keller gives, I think, the best illustration I've ever seen on these eight verses of Scripture. He says, imagine that there are three guys, uh, we'll put a girl in there, because you know we're we're equal opportunity. So imagine two guys and and a girl are going to swim from Hawaii to Japan, okay? You got that in your minds? Okay, right? We're all ready. Okay, so they're all three going to swim to Japan. The first one cannot swim at all, all right? So he, and we'll make that the guy, he goes out into the water, and as soon as his feet can't touch the bottom, he sinks and he drowns. The second one, also a guy, is a weak swimmer, okay? So he, he flounders, pun intended, he flounders for like 60 yards, okay, and then he wears out, and then he drowns. But the third, the woman, she is an Olympic swimmer, okay? She's a champion. So she dives into the water, and man, she's just stroking it, right? Beautiful stroke, I know. Swims for miles, but then she tires, and she drowns, all right? I think you know where I'm going with this. Here's the question. Although number three got farther than number two and number one, In the end, what does it matter? Is number three any less drowned than number two or number one? None of them. All three are on the bottom of the ocean. That is Paul's point. Whether you're a pagan way out there, you know, whether you're a religious person, we're all drowned by our humanness when it comes to sin. There is no one righteous. Now here, verses three, uh, uh, chapter three, nine through twenty. What shall we conclude then? Do we, and that means any of us, do any of us have any advantage? Not at all. 
For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through works of the law, we become conscious of our sin. And so there you have it. Whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Gentile, none of us have an automatic in with God because of our birthright, because of our gender. This is Paul's message to this church. None of us by our human nature, are any better than anybody else. And I love that Paul includes the whole body in this, you know, in case we, we, we kind of want to pick and choose and say, well, I'm a little better here than there. Yeah, Paul includes everything. I mean, the list is um, eyes, throats, mouth, lips, tongues, feet, minds, all of it steers all of us into sin. So it's kind of like the children's song, you know, from, from uh, years ago, head and shoulders, knees and toes. We're corrupt all the way through. That, that, that's Paul's point. So whether you're a pagan trusting in this world, you know, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Well, I'll make a life for me. Well, you know what? I'll rescue myself from my condition. Paul says no chance. You know, wh- whether we're, we're a religious person who, who's trusting in the forms and, you know, the styles of, of, of worship rituals to save us, we're all under the power of sin. We're equally lost in sin. We cannot save ourselves. So have a nice day. I'll see you next week. Isn't that great? No, seriously. Seriously, though, we hear this. I know what some, some people, I thought this when I was reading this. You know, Steve, is there anything positive that we can say, you know, from Romans 3, 1 through 20? Is, is there anything And, of course, the answer is yes, Uh, but kind of some bad news, though. The really good stuff starts in 21, and it runs, and that's all next week, okay? But for now, there is something very, very positive, believe it or not, in all of this. And, y'all, this is a nugget, okay? This is is a gem in the ground. We're going to take a quick peek forward, and then we're going to take a quick peek back and look at what's here. In verse 21... After Paul lays all this out for the Roman church, he says this in 21, okay? He says, but God has shown us a way to be made right with him. And that is the start of the good stuff. Now, if you're astute today, you're thinking something, and it's a question. And the question is, yeah, Paul, God has shown us a way to be made right with him, but If we're all as bad as you say we are in verses 1 through 20, who in the world is going to be able to see the way that's there before us? Who's going to be able to respond to it? 
And believe it or not, Paul has told us in verse 18 who is going to be able to see the way that God opens. Who is going to be able to see what God has done? It's, it's a little phrase, four words long, and the words are the fear of God. Those who have a sense of the fear of God. For those who maybe they're hearing the message for the first time and it hits them, those who, who, who get a sense of the fear of God, who, 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 you know, who can see it, those who step into it, they will see how to be made right. And you might say, well, why is that? Because the fear of God is actually the starting point of spiritual life. Now, some people might argue, no, Steve, you're 100% wrong. Faith is the beginning of spiritual life. It's not true. The fear of God comes before faith. The fear of God is what convicts us, draws us into the words of God, makes this whole thing become real. Without the fear of God, we're in major trouble as humanity. We are Back to the illustration, we are dead in the water without the fear of God. So it might be a good idea for us to know what the fear of God is. Is the fear of God being terrified of hell? Um, Is it being afraid that God has got a sledgehammer and he is about to drop it on us? I'll be honest with you, there have been times in sin where the fear of God has come upon me like that. But folks, essentially the fear of God is actually about recognition, it is about wonder, awe, and gratitude. That is the heart of the fear of God. Okay, let me tell you what it looks like. Okay, here's the fear of God. The fear of God is me finally realizing that when it comes to spiritual life, I bring nothing to the table. Nothing. I bring nothing to the table. God, on the other hand, he brings the feast. Okay, Fear of God, that's that awakening. Fear of God is me realizing that when it comes to life, I I can't make myself live. I can't make myself wake up, you know? I I can't take battery cables and jumpstart my own heart. I can't. I cannot revive me. I, I can't make me live. But God alone, oh, he gives life. Oh, and he gives life. And he just gives it and gives it and keeps on giving, and that's why we call it abundant. Oh, it should say abundant over there, but it doesn't. I'll change that next week. But that's the fear of God. And so, so in response of that, okay, in response to that, recognizing who I am not and who he is, I forsake every lie of self-satisfaction. I forsake every lie that, you know what, I can do it. Oh, well, I'm born in America. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps, you know. I can't. I cannot make me live. So, so I, I forsake that. I, I forsake the lie that I'm better than anybody else for any other reason, even if my reason is a religious one. I forsake the lie that I can provide for me and take care of me and mine. And then in awe and wonder, okay, with that going on, in awe and wonder, I embrace the truth that God is love and God is calling me. You know, the prodigal son, he is the father at the end of the road saying, come on, come to me. And, and in faith, you know, I just go with empty hands. I, I, I go with, with open hands and I just put my faith in him. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Even if my faith is this big, you know, it can be mustard seed size. I, I put my faith in Christ. 
That's what the fear of God does. That's how it works spiritually. And here's the beautiful thing. So many of you know this. We're getting ready to celebrate this at Easter and Palm Sunday. When I go to Christ and I put my faith in him, empty cross, right? Resurrected Lord, what happens to me? You know, I go from, you know, spiritual jello to life. I come to life. And it's not just me that comes to life. Everything else comes to life around me. You know, just the playoff of religion, since Paul's been talking about religion, you know, he's been talking about empty religion, and, and Paul, that, that's a drum he will bang all the time. I mean, I mean he is a one-drum one, one drummer, man. Empty religion, empty religion. Well, you know, religion can become empty for us. I, how, I don't know how much time you've spent in the church. Essentially, I have spent my life in the church. I grew up in the church. You know, you do this for a while, and you know, you kind of get used to things. You know, you get used to the imagery. You know, you get used to some of the sacraments. You know, you get used to the way we do things. We get used to it, and it becomes empty and meaningless. It can for us. When we come to life in Christ, though, all of that gets new meaning. You know, suddenly we move from the Word of God being, you know, th- this taskmaster in my life. You know, oh, I've got to keep this one. I've got to keep that one. You know, or, or this accusing finger. You know, you, you, you failed, you're losing. It goes from that to this guide that just sends me further into life. The, these beautiful, pleasant boundary lines for me. The, the Word of God becomes this living thing. And it opens my ears to the words of God, fresh from the Holy Spirit. That, that's where the fear of God takes us. You know, in, in worship, the fear of God moves worship from being, you know, a, a set list of songs that we sing or, you know, uh, kind of a checklist to see how they're doing. You know, how's the choir doing today? You know, how's praise and worship? But it goes from that to my love songs, my confessions to Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the fear of God when it comes to sacraments, you know, baptism and communion. And again, the, the, you know, we can get really used to those. They go from being just this thing we do once a month or at Palm Sunday or a couple times a year to just um, this living celebration for you and I. When it comes to one another, you know, you are transformed from my parishioners or my congregants or to each other, you know, fellow members of the same body to brothers and sisters, a family I can't live without, a family I've got to do life with. The fear of God does all of that. And i tell you what makes Romans, and I'm going to make a statement that might get rotten fruit thrown at me, but what makes Romans 1 through 320 really fun for me? I just said it. I think Romans 1 through 320 is fun. What makes it really fun is that KPC is in a season of awakening. You know, we're in a season of just responding to the loving correction and, and, and the, the, the sweetness of God. You know, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but several Sundays lately, you know, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not sure I recognize these people. Look at all these people down front. Look at the, look at the worship that has taken place. Look at the, these fresh words that are coming from the body. We're in a season of renewal. Now, yeah, I know there's some pruning involved there, but we are in a season of, revo- of renewal. I, I almost said revival. I'll use that one too. As a church. And I believe that's true as the church in America. I really think we're heading there, guys, to seeing the Spirit of God do things that we've just been hearing stories about. But we are, as a people, awakening to the goodness, the kindness, the mercy, and the love of God. It's true. 
We're awakening to our God-given purpose and mission and destiny as a church. We are also awakening to the gift of one another. That is not a bad place to be. The sound panels on the wall. You know, I think I've told you guys before, these things cost thousands to put up. Somebody made them and put them up for free for us from within the body. Those pallet walls, it's just people waking up to their giftedness and saying, man, I just want to, not would you please mention my name and engrave my name, uh, you know, on the end of a pew, but just I want to love the body. Don't tell anybody who I am. I just, I, I want to I sweeten this place and this body. So folks, I love where we're going, but I, I tell you, as a church, as a pastor, one thing I've been praying all week long is, Lord, help me to walk forward in the fear of the Lord. Help me to do that. You know, I was tempted to get very negative the other day. Oh, man, it just came on me, and I just wanted to get sour and negative. I was, I was reminded of the fear of God. If you fear God, why are you going to confess all this negative stuff? You know, Steve, walk before the Lord with uprightness. You know, lift your eyes to the hills. That's where your help comes from. What are you doing scanning all around, get, you know, getting disheartened? So I pray that we as a body, we remain just locked into the fear of God to pursuing Him, to beholding Him, to marveling at Him, just saying thank you to Him every time He turns around. I I pray that we do that, that we come to Him as a body forsaking everything that is not of the kingdom, especially as we head into Palm Sunday and Tenebrae and Easter. Man, I'm, I'm ready for some resurrection in my heart this Easter, you know? I, as a body, you know, a resurrected people. I love the old, uh, one of the popes said it, you know. Uh, uh, we are the Easter people. Hallelujah is our song. I just want to be there. Not Roman Catholic. I want to be there in that place, though. I really do. Complete surrender to the one who died for us, to the one who made us, to the one who loves us, to the one that wants to change the world through us. Amen? Amen. I, I'm getting readier than I was for Easter okay? Um, Shiloh's going to come up and lead us in a song, and she probably didn't know when I was going to end. So, Shiloh, I'm going to give you a second. How long do you need? Okay, just to plug in. Let me pray for us, and just say a quick prayer. She's going to lead us in a song, and then at the end, I'm going to ask you to stand, and when I pray, I want to invite you to open your hands in surrender to the Lord, and I want to pray something specific over us, um, after that time, if you have a specific prayer need, we're going to have altar ministers come up front. Elders will come up. If you need to pray with somebody, don't leave here until you do. We're gonna, we'll fill the front, and there'll be someone to pray with you. So, Shiloh, I'll pray with my eyes open so I can see when you're ready, but everyone else is going to close theirs. <laughs> Father God, we love you, and, and Lord, I just cannot thank you enough for Paul. I love that in the kingdom, even as a pastor, we don't get to go to the top of some kind of food chain and preach down at other people. I thank you for the ways that you are skewering my heart with your word. I thank you that your word is sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to, to, to cut between joint and marrow. And Father, at the end of the day, we want to be, we want to be those who have had a heart of stone taken out And we've been given by you a living heart of flesh that responds to your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, before we sing, I just want to say this to you. I love everything about you. And we welcome every part of you into everything we do here. You are Lord, and we honor you today, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. 
Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.